Good morning. Matthew 5, 1 through 20. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, well, thank you, Ellen, for reading that. Uh, This morning, we are going to be looking and continuing our series on an imagination for Jesus. And we'll be looking at a new aspect of Jesus' teaching, sort of trying to chart a storyline through the series, actually, just as the Bible is in a storyline, to help us understand what next. Last week we talked about the imagination of Jesus and the devil. And I think that was helpful for us to imagine that we are in a spiritual battlefield. Today, I want to start with a section from a a book that has been particularly moving for me. I've quoted from it before. It's Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy. And in it, uh, he opens with this in the chapter where he starts to begin to dig in on the Sermon on the Mount. He uses a quote from Paul Simon uh, from their song, Blessed, which was on The Sound of Silence, which came out right after The Graduate rocketed them into fame, Simon and Garfunkel. And the song is actually Paul Simon's poetic living out to the best he can, to the most truthful he can, of the Beatitudes and asking a question of why the church looks one way. And the the teachings of Jesus seem to elicit something else. And the quote that starts out the song is, Blessed are the sat upon, the spat upon, and the ratted on. And in this, Dallas Willard continues with his translation from the Greek of Matthew 3, which is such a pivotal text to understand the Beatitudes, where he says this, Blessed are the spiritually deprived, for they too find the kingdom of the heavens. Blessed are the spiritually deprived, for they too find the kingdom of the heavens. And he says this, the puzzle of the Beatitudes is this. What we have come to call the Sermon on the Mount is a concise statement of Jesus' teaching on how to actually live in the reality of God's present kingdom available to us from the very space surrounding our bodies. It concludes with the statement that all who hear and do what he there says will have a life that can stand up to everything that is, a life for eternity because it is already in the eternal. And there he is, he is quoting Matthew, or he's expounding on Matthew 7, 24 and 25, when the Sermon on the Mount ends. 
This is not specifically in Willard's reading the way most of us have read it, which is simply a list of character traits we need to subscribe to in order to be holy and worthy, the best Christian, the, the path to salvation. Nor is it a bar that is so high and unachievable that it shows us that we might as well just accept the grace of Jesus and get on with our lives because there's no way you can do this. No, rather, this is showing in Willard's words that the kingdom is now available to everyone. That the kingdom that Jesus brings when he hikes up this hill is a kingdom for what Dallas Willard calls the spiritual zeros. Those without any virtue at all. Remember in our series in the Gospel of John when, when we talked about the open heavens, the idea that Jesus came and he opened the heavens up. The kingdom of heaven was now open and access was available through his teachings and fulfilled finally on the cross. And it is such a countercultural idea to do this that it would have been absolutely radical at the time, not just for the Jews who believed that they were ethnically the people of God, but even for the surrounding cultures of the Greeks. Plato, 450 years prior to this, wrote this, the man who suffers hunger or the like is not a man who deserves pity. So this is, by the way, the common consensus of how to treat the poor at that time in the secular world, but only the virtuous person deserves pity. Only the virtuous person who experiences some misfortune deserves pity. There shall be no begging in our state, and if any man attempts to beg and to collect a livelihood by ceaseless pleas, the market steward shall expel him from the market and the board of city stewards from the city, and in any other district they shall drive across the border by the country stewards to the end that the land be wholly purged of such a creature. This is the consensus at the time, this is the status quo, is that the person who does not only have no means, who is poor, but is actually poor in spirit as the way Willard sees it, spiritually deprived, without any virtue, has the kingdom opened to them. I think most of us raised with this verse understood it to be you need to be humble and take away your pride because the poor in spirit are the ones who know Jesus. I'm not saying that's not true. I'm saying that there's a deeper meaning here. That what that takes us down, the road that that takes us down is you need to rely on Jesus. And if you don't rely on Jesus, well, then you're wrong. And what that, what that subtly does is create a sense that those who rely on Jesus are right and those who don't are wrong and we are better and they are worse. And it's just very easy for the church to fall into this path. And I think that's why Willard is particularly subversive and intentionally controversial. Quoting Paul Simon in 1960s New York, walking around, that song he talks about, walking in lower Soho, asking, why has God forsaken me? And Willard is saying this, God hasn't forsaken you. That it is not about some action that makes you in any way better. But then what happens? What happens? Jesus goes on to preach an incredibly practical sermon about how we should behave. So it's pretty interesting, isn't it? We, we don't earn our salvation, and yet there's a code of conduct that we should subscribe to. How do we reconcile these two things? What is it that makes us worthy, and how then do we live out of that? And so today what I want to talk about is an imagination of Jesus, a, a, an imagination for Jesus and our habits I want to talk about what we do. Okay, so we started talking about the nature of what an imagination for Jesus does for the mission of the church, right, in week one. Then Tabitha came and talked about the heart that Jesus is calling us for back from the garden. Last week, we talked about the battle. And this week, what we get to talk about is what we do in the battle. And the bottom line is this. We are asked by Jesus to profess allegiance throughout this battle. 
that sums up so much of the Christian life and actually reconciles these things well. Jesus says, believe in me. And what he means by that, especially at the age of that time when the coming Messiah would be the future king, is that believing is allegiance. Believing is saying, you are the one who tells me everything about the good life, which includes how to live through the battle that is this life. And so that allows us to open up into a space where we can say virtue is important, but Jesus saves and has opened the door for everyone to imbue and demonstrate and create fertile ground for his virtue to be embraced. The Sermon on the Mount is one of Jesus's most practical teachings. In fact, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, it takes you 15 to 18 minutes. I looked it up. That's the max length for a TED Talk. This is Jesus's TED Talk, right? This has got the highest YouTube hits of anything Jesus would have talked about. The Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes are some of the most well-known lines across the world. But to call it a TED Talk downplays it way too much because this is far more. This is like the king's speech. That is the lens that we should view this through. Patrick Schreiner, who used to teach out here at Western, wrote for the Bible Project this, that kings are to be the animated law. They are to be the law in a body. He said, kings in ancient times were to give the law and embody the law internally and produce good legislation that transforms the people and leads them in obedience to the law. Evidence exists both in ancient Near Eastern culture and the biblical text that kings were to be living embodiments of the law who instructed through both teaching and example what it meant to follow the law. As the king goes, the nation goes. We really don't have a paradigm for this anymore. In an age where we are hypercritical of our leaders, where there's always another leader standing in the wing that says he could do a better job. We don't understand this ancient view of the king as the representative human of the culture who is expected to abide by the behavior he professes to call everyone into the bounds of. And he says, Jesus is the Davidic king who becomes the living law. So now... Now, imagine that butted up against the preceding verses. Anytime we read the Bible, I I toot this horn all the time here. When we read the Bible, read around what you're reading. Context is everything. Where does Willard get his view? He gets it from the preceding two verses in Matthew 4, 23 through 25. What happens right before Jesus opens his mouth to begin teaching He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So what has happened right before Jesus begins teaching the ethical worldview, the virtue system of the kingdom of heaven? This is so important, you guys. What happens right before that? He has healed the people he's speaking to. They come into his teaching, not looking for healing from the teaching, but having been healed, ask now, what do I do with my life? That alone could, could, you could spend a year simply reading your Bible from that framework. Jesus has called, he is absolutely the smartest man ever to exist on this planet, ever. But it is not his teachings that get you into heaven. It is his healings that get you into his heaven. But what happens after he heals? He teaches. So for us to say, Jesus has saved me, 
Now I can go on with my life. And all of the rest of that stuff, that's just your salvation by works trap, is also not accurate. The Bible is far more mysterious. We have to grapple with it far more intensely. We have to live through it so much more. A friend of mine who's been a particularly helpful peer right now, he just looked at me over a fire pit one night. He goes, he goes, John, he goes, you could just rip out, get an old Bible, rip out Matthew 5 through 7 and make it your Bible for a year. That's your Bible. You will, you can make it your Bible for a lifetime and you won't plumb the depths of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, which I would recommend you do this week, maybe today in the cool of your room, read it and understand what Jesus is after here. It makes so much more sense when you understand this is teaching out of healing because he is teaching that it is not the circumstances that you are in that determine your level of salvation. It is not where you're at that is indicative of who you are. That's why he can say, blessed are the spiritually deprived because I have opened the heaven to them. He healed people who have no clue about virtue, who inherited family sin, who dealt with circumstances we couldn't imagine, where it was a dog-eat-dog world. And he said, the kingdom is open to you and you don't have to have a certain level of virtue to be healed by me. So, if we look at this as a story, we begin to be able to read it so much more clearly. So commonly we read the Bible as an algorithm, as a math equation, as a this and this equals this. And it comes a lot from a kind of a two-part gospel story that we have inherited, that we have lifted out in the last 50 years. And I think this is, there's, hey, there's a lot of good things that have happened during this, but it's an incomplete story. The revivals of Billy Graham are a really good example of a two-part gospel story, okay? If I asked you to explain the gospel, just think, what would you say for a second? What is the gospel of Jesus? Could be Jesus forgives sinners, could be Jesus loves you. It's a pretty simple and clear statement of the heart of the gospel. It could be, hey, through Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, Jesus forgave and Jesus alone forgave your sins. Or hey, you're a sinner, but Jesus saves you and takes you to heaven one day. And I would say that was the pretty particular um, vision, articulation that Billy Graham and all of the revivalists of that era really communicated strongly was, we are sinners saved by grace. Profess your belief in Jesus and go to heaven, right? Live an eternal life. It's a two-part gospel. What it is, is it's the fall in Genesis 3 and it's the redemption of the cross. It's a two-part. And that is our simplistic understanding of the gospel. But the Bible storyline is more robust than that. The Bible storyline at least has a four-part gospel. And some of us are aware of that. Creation. God is the creator God. We fell from the Imago Dei, from the image that he created, that he desired for us to live in. He has then redeemed us through Jesus, and there will be restoration one day in heaven. But even that has been picked apart recently. And D.A. Carson recently said there, it is far more helpful to articulate the Bible storyline across a five-point gospel. You guys, this was brand new for me. This was brand new. A mentor sat down the other day coaching me and said, this is so important. Creation, Genesis 1 and 2. The fall, Genesis 3. Redemption, the fall, Genesis 3 through like the entire Old Testament, right? Redemption, the gospel stories. And then renewal. All of the epistles, all of the letters to the churches are all about renewal. Paul was interested in renewal. Peter and James were interested in renewal. And then finally, restoration with John at Patmos writing the book of Revelation that one day all will be made new. But in the meantime, what do you do with your time? We need to have a new imagination of Jesus and our habits, 
our habit life, our lifestyle. And what he is essentially saying, what Jesus is saying to this crowd is, I desire you. I have healed you. I am the king of the kingdom you really want to live in. And I want you to live in it. So let me be your life coach. Let me be your life coach. Now, help me reframe the world that you've been taught. Help me reframe the status quo. It's the illustration I used last week of playing a game with my kids, right? You are no longer playing to win the game in front of you. You are playing to win a totally different game. And it is the better game to play. It's a game you are for sure to win. And it's a game that by winning, you will not be self-consumed. You will not become self-righteous. You will not become self-absorbed. But it's going to take a different allegiance, which in the popular vernacular, at least in this church, we've often called a heart posture. It's kind of a mouthful, but that's the word we've settled on, I guess, is heart posture. And so Jesus sets out to explain a countercultural teaching, wildly countercultural teaching, that God's blessing would not always be evident in worldly prosperity. Now, this is a wild and disruptive statement for Jesus to make at this time. Think of what the ancient kings represented themselves by and then carried into the afterlife. I was looking up the pharaohs because that's the first thing that came to my mind. BBC Online, they talked about this. They said in 1922, when King Tut's tomb was opened, it contained two thrones. Maybe he needed a backup. Maybe there was a queen. I don't know. Six chariots, a solid gold burial mask, a makeup bag, wig, perfume box. There was a hundred baskets of barley, figs, grapes, melons, tasty treats, and he loved a glass of wine as evidenced by the many jars of wine in his tomb. Some of the tombs even had board games. It shows that somehow the accumulations of this world in the ancient culture were seen to have a continuity or indicate some kind of worth or maybe represent an offering into the next life to demonstrate the blessing you had in this life that will hopefully help you get through the gate to the next life or survive in it as you enter some brand new reality. It's kind of like you get to start with more at the beginning of the game. And Jesus says this is simply not the case. And he said it to Jews who believe this. Remember Job. What did Job's friends come up and do? Job was incredibly wealthy, righteous in every way, blessed by all outward appearances. And they said, gosh, Job, it just must have been something you did because up until now, you've been totally blessed. You're completely righteous. So you must be unrighteous. And your worldly prosperity is an evidence of that. Think of what motivated the rich young ruler when he came to Jesus. He said, I have followed everything. You can tell by all of the money I have by all of the wealth I have. What else is there to do? I've gotten to the top and I don't even know what to do next. I think I've accumulated every blessing there is to accumulate. I think I've represented my worthiness, but you're the great teacher, tell me. And Jesus mirrors his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Challenges his view of what the kingdom of heaven is and how the access to it must be granted. Because the rich young ruler and Job and even the pharaohs are right that there must be some avenue to heaven. There has to be some avenue that gets you to the good life hereafter. There was a great fear of death and a feeling that we have to do everything we can in this life to accumulate the best possible chances we can have to get into the next life. And Jesus flips this all on his head with his, the Beatitudes. Take the inverse of some of these statements. Here's what it might read like. Blessed are the conquerors, not the peacemakers. Think about it. Conquerors would look blessed. They, Pharaoh was a conqueror. Teddy Roosevelt, what was his famous line? Walk softly and carry a big stick. Right. If you think America is just totally a great peaceful nation, you should see the size of our world class military that is the biggest in the world. Strength is the way you reach prosperity always and forever in the worldly kingdom and will always be that way. 
And so people have decided what their different avenues to heaven are, and Jesus immediately, as a teacher, subverts and disrupts that and says, no, there is a different access point to heaven. If I'm teaching the good life and this is how the kingdom of heaven is available to you, and I'm not saying it's from the typical methods and habits, then I'm saying your habits are actually meant for something different than you're using them for. And so he spends time revising all of the teachings that have slowly been perverted from the original law given by God. And throughout the rest of Matthew 6, you can see it right after the the verses end that we go through. He says, you have heard it was said. You have heard it was said. He is correcting the misconceptions that the law and the leaders and the Pharisees had given because they had started to see, oh, this is actually what works. And so wisdom would be to do what works, right? This is why our prayer life decreases and our doing increases usually. We just decide, I'm going to do what works. And so Jesus is outlining some new method of navigating with a new method of access. And he shows it in the story by saying, I'm going to heal you and then I'm going to teach you. Paul in Romans 7 talks about the fact that there are actually no habits. There are no habits that will get us to heaven. He says, the law brings death. That's him talking about the habit life, the doing life. And he says, the actions and living up to that bar and that lifestyle that is an achievement-based lifestyle will bring death. Instead, he talks about the renewal of our minds, right? The key is the renewal of our minds, and there is a truth that sets us free, is what Jesus talks about. And so Jesus goes into this later in Matthew. Let me see if I have it here. In Matthew 6, verses 12 through 13, I won't read the full verse, but if you look at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I am the narrow gate. He says, you must go through the narrow gate. Let me just read it for a second, because I think it will help us to hear the full verse that he talks about in here. If you turn, if you have Bibles open, turn to Matthew 6, verses 12 through 13. If I have that right. I might have written that down wrong. Sorry, 7, 7, 13, and 14. I wrote it there wrong. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus is not talking about actions there, but about a ruler, about a king, and he's talking about himself. And so when we hear this this daunting section, this daunting part that Ellen read at the end where he says, do not think I have come to abolish the law. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, for until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest nether, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the heaven of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of the heaven. Well, that certainly sounds like works-based righteousness, doesn't it? For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of the heaven. Whoa, talk about lose me. Just lost me completely. I thought I was on to something. This is why the disciples didn't completely understand the whole Jesus until he died and was resurrected. This is why they couldn't possibly understand it. This is why Jesus, while talking very practically and clearly, always led you to a deeper level of mystery and still does lead us to a deeper level of mystery. It is because the reality of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, all of it, the teachings, everything, is necessary for the fulfillment, for the narrow gate to be created, and then he has invited us to walk through it because he says, you will never. But the answer is not to say virtue doesn't matter. 
The answer is to admit that only Jesus has the virtue to fulfill what God calls the human race to do, this side of the fall. And the grace is that I have forgiven you and I have called you to an allegiance throughout this battle. We will win, you stay allegiant. We will win, I need you to profess allegiance. It's gonna get rough, you're gonna feel like the king has no plan, you're gonna feel like there's no way out of the foxhole that you're in, you're gonna feel like everyone has jump shipped. Stay allegiant to the king. And it is there that creates what we call an anchor habit. Okay, there's, a, there's a, a sort of common business term. People are big into habits right now, by the way. There's an explosion of books on habits. There's a book out called Atomic Habits, Tiny Habits. The habit life is a big deal because everybody's looked and said, okay, how can I live to the maximum efficiency? How can I be the best possible worker, best possible parent? How can I just get every inch out of this life because the information age has shown us that there is so much you can know, but the human limitations are there, they're real, our bodies are difficult to work with. We have to beat them into submission with the tiny habits, with all of these ways that we can begin to achieve our salvation. We live in a workspace righteousness world, but we can learn things from habits even if they're done with the wrong heart. And I learned a lot by this idea of an anchor habit. You guys know what an anchor habit is, okay? An anchor habit is basically anything that when it's gone, you know you're unhealthy, okay? An anchor habit for some people is yoga. Some people it's having a zero inbox, right? My inbox is empty, I know I'm on top of things. Some people it's waking up first before the kids. If I wake up at six and they're not up yet, I know I'm in a healthy place, I know I'm on top, I'm in control. Some people it's journaling. If I miss my journaling, my life must be chaotic. For some people, it's getting their 10,000 steps. If I get my steps in, I know I'm worth something. I know I'm doing okay, right? It's basically an anchor habit is an is a indication that your life is not totally out of whack. That's basically what an anchor habit is. Well, here's Jesus's anchor habit. If you don't have grace, if you haven't been healed, you're out of whack. As a Christian, if you cannot come to the mountain of the teachings of Jesus out of a place of being healed of your worst life-threatening diseases, each and every one of us, you're out of whack because Jesus is the narrow gate. And you can't, if you're not walking through that gate, there's nothing else you can do. There's literally nothing. And so Jesus has said, it's available to everybody but the only way you'll know what to do with anything I say is if you've actually been touched by me. If you've actually experienced the grace I've given you, the gift I've given you, the rescue mission I've completed with you. And so for our new imagination for Jesus and our habits, we need to cling to an anchor habit that we must imagine and reimagine, rehearse and remind and remember and live out and re-experience before any other habit can be trusted to produce fruit in our life. Any other habit. Bill Hybels at Willow Creek, who's now fallen from grace, but Willow Creek was an incredible story. Many great teachers, Ruth Haley Barton, Scott McKnight, many great teachers have come out of Willow Creek and it just revolutionized sort of the mega church world. And there were many good and bad things that came from it. But one particularly interesting report is Willow Creek was your classic suburban church. Programs for everything. You know, kids programs, all these great, you know, big events, everything. Programs, programs, programs. And they spent millions of dollars on these programs. And then they were smart enough to have a study done to see the fruit and the actual transformational power of the programs. Whatever metrics they used, they found out that it didn't do anything didn't do anything other than that it was the same as people. It was worse than people who had simply clung to the specific habits, the specific habits that come out of an anchor practice of prayer, the word, and fellowship. That all of these programs, all of these great things, all of this money spent could not replace the simple program, the simple message of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. So what it shows us is that anything we do, no matter how big and bombastic, 
is completely meaningless unless it's done from the gospel storyline. That we need to practice being people that live out of a storyline that God is telling a beautiful, incredible storyline that there is no cracking the code of the algorithm for salvation or to prove your friend wrong, which is really just condemnation, or to achieve our goals, which is self-actualization. But the answer is to be present and open to God's grace and his voice through Jesus. Matthew 5 through 7, your whole life, you could never plumb the bottom of it. That's what my friend meant. That the gospel is not instruction. It's good news. That's our anchor habit. How is it good news for me? How does it change then how I live? How do I live out of the gospel now into a habit life? Because we cannot profess allegiance throughout a battle unless we have very particular maybe disabilities or circumstances in that metaphor that would not allow us to fight or participate in some way for the forces. Think of World War II, right? Didn't matter if you're on the front line, there was still ways you professed allegiance to the movement of the war. Women got out and worked in factories. People picked up in every way they could, victory gardens, in any way they could do with their life the way God had given it. They participated in the profession of allegiance with their bodies. And so I think some Christians, especially now, suggest that we should do away with an imagination for spiritual disciplines, for habits, because it just feels like salvation by works. But you see that Jesus doesn't say, you must fast, you must do this, you must do that. He says, when you fast, when you pray, when you give to the needy. He is assuming that many people will continue to do these because they see value, because they want to do them out of the gift of grace. But now they have a new and com a completely new imagination behind them. Whereas before you were fasting to live up to the social pressures of the Pharisees to look like your role models, whereas before you were praying in the model of the Pharisees who prayed with many words, whereas before you gave to the needy to be seen by everybody else, so you did it out in a busy street, giving your alms to the poor and making the clinks really loud and like whatever you did, you did it for the wrong reasons, he said. So he said, I'm gonna set up some walls and some barriers and some behaviors to help you build character. To help you build character. Os Guinness, when he talked about the Puritans, said as they were living, they lived as if they were living for an audience of one. So I think our challenge with our anchor habit is to say, okay, I've got my anchor habit. How do I now build my habit life as if I'm living before an audience of one? What are the kingdom values that represent my character, the character that Jesus asked me to have and how do I live out of that so that it becomes second nature? My kids and our family last night to, or yesterday to beat the heat, we put on a new show on Disney called Mysterious Benedict Society. It's actually pretty good. It's a very Wes Anderson style, super stylized. And as these four kids and they, they, it's like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. They kind of have to go off somewhere and they, they read this thing in the paper and they have to go past this test. And the, pest, the test is like a really high bar. And on the way, there's all sorts of things that happen to the main character on the way. A girl meets him and drops her pencil and it's like trapped underneath. And she says, I need a pencil. And he says, oh, and he breaks his in half. He says, I can sharpen it in there. And like, there's all these innovative ways that he shows his smarts and his intellect. And then she says, hey, thanks for the pencil. Um, sit close to me. I know all the answers. And if you sit next to me, you can just look at my paper. And he says, why would I do that? Like, no. And what he's doing there and what the professor that he meets at the end of eventually acknowledges for him is he acknowledges the virtue. That's what virtue is. He, he would never do that. Even if it meant he failed the test, he wouldn't cheat, right? And so what he was demonstrating is out of the anchor habit of grace, Jesus is actually laying out a path to virtue. Again, this path to virtue does not earn him the kingdom, but the path of virtue is something that he will naturally do when what he believes is right is the paradigm he lives towards, his allegiance. And he says, if I believe that's right, why would I act like this? 
And so he begins to build his habit life, living in such a way that it is in line with the kingdom of heaven. And what will naturally happen over the course of his life is a renewal. That's what Paul is talking about, a renewal of his habits. Again, his habits do not earn entry to the kingdom. Okay, loud and clear. The virtue is not an accomplishment. The virtue is a display of the allegiance. Jesus does not measure the levels of virtue, but we can know them by their fruit, as the Bible says, because the outer is a reflection of the inner. The actual word root of the word habit means to have, to wear, to be situated, to have in mind. If you think about a habit, what else is a habit? Nuns wear habits, right? It's a clothing, it's an outer shell to a person. And so actually the habit life comes out of our limited time and our priorities. And that's what we create. That's what we do. We do a habit. So it is a reflection of our character. It is a reflection of what we believe is important that gets us to a place where our habits exist, where they happen, where we begin to do them without thinking. Many of our habits, we just simply do them. And we do them because that is just the, that's just what you do. That's just how you live. And the beauty of that is that the Beatitudes are in part showing us, and the sermon shows us that there is incredible social good that comes out of people who begin to realize that there's beauty and virtue and goodness for all people. When I begin to live a habit life that is built out of character, the, inter, the inner life is displayed in the outer. I'm not gonna go into this deeply, we just don't have time. But if you look through the Sermon on the Mount, the inner character traits that he demonstrates by reframing the practices center around devotion and intention, placing God over man. They center around secrecy and simplicity. Secrecy is a big one. I never understood secrecy. Why pray in secret? Because if you need other people's affirmation, if you need to pray so that you will be seen, there's an indication that the character, that the anchor habit of grace is off service and integrity. Integrity is what that boy displayed in the story. The audience of one, generosity and frugality. That if we live within our needs, and that is below our means, we can find we actually have capacity to give we didn't realize. Some of us don't have capacity to give simply because we haven't lived for what we actually need. And so there is beauty in frugality. And in fact, frugal living begets generous living. He talks about praying with simplicity. That a prayer is not about getting nods and amens, but it is about simplicity. It's about grace. It's about walking alongside people. That fasting helps us actually understand our true needs. That it helps us practice devotion and intention. There's so many different ways if you go through this sermon that you will see how the inner anchor habit of grace, how the healing that Jesus does before the teaching changes how you view so much of the things that Jesus asks us to do with our life and demonstrates as a good habit life. And so what this means, if we look then, if we dial back to verse 13 and verse 14. This was the original reason I, I grabbed onto this text. I said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Well, wait, in John, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So why is he now saying you are the light of the world? Jesus is saying, you guys up here, you've been healed. You followed me up the mountain. You're listening and taking in my teaching as an authentic vision of the kingdom of heaven. He says, you get it. You have, you profess allegiance. So guess what? Now you're the light of the world. Now you're the salt of the earth. You bring the flavor. You bring the truth. And we say, Jesus, 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 do it. Come do it. And he says, no, you do it. Jesus appoints dignity to our creative expressions. If we have a proper imagination of Jesus for our habits, now our creative expressions with the anchor habit of grace have incredible dignity. Jesus actually says, no, you go. I want you to do it. 
because I created you unique and original. You have a voice that somebody needs to hear. You have a way of doing the spiritual disciplines. You have a way of practicing the anchor habit of grace that will speak to somebody else. But often we build our fellowship habits in such a way that actually keep us out of fellowship with God or keep us out of fellowship with the people who need that message the most. We build habits, in fact, to keep us out of fellowship with the poor. We build habits that keep us out of it. We don't have time for it because our internal character has said, no, I need to rub shoulders with more pious people. I need to climb the ladder of achievement. I need to be at more business meetings. I need to learn more things to refine my achievement protocols so that my habits are about achievement. And see, that's the massive, massive difference in our habit life. A new imagination of a habit is that a habit is not an achievement tool, but an expression of character. Take that in so deeply. I guarantee you a huge amount of my habits are actually geared as achievement tools, right? Oh, the five minute job, if I can do this, my yard will look a little bit better. So I just take a five minute here and do a little bit of weeding, better looking yard, just live up to kind of the, the neighborhood vibe here. You know, it's an achievement habit. Or the habit of like tidying up, you know, the, the kitchen so it's just clean so I can really have that peace because I need cleanliness to have peace, you know? Well, wait, wait a second. With the anchor habit of grace, you have peace. Like, it's not bad to clean the counter, but like, you don't need to do it to get peace. And like, even right now, you've gone, no, John, I need to, I need, I need to clean the counter to get peace. Like, uh-uh. But it is this achievement practice with our habits versus the habits emerging from a character, a prescription of character, a nature of the kingdom embodied by Jesus that he says, if you profess allegiance, you build your habits out of the character world. I'm your life coach. So I just want to end with this story. This week, the deacons and I went to Portland Rescue Mission. And, you know, we were scouting out their service as a place for our church to serve. But you guys, it just slapped me on the face. I had such conviction, simply seeing the women at Shepherd's Door who individually were living out of the anchor habit of grace in a way that was visible, visceral, and transformational. That simply by taking time, four hours of the morning, to fellowship with what Paul Simon would call the spat upon, sat upon, and ratted on. I understood, I lived and learned and learned and lived the anchor habit and said, oh my gosh, the gospel actually works. <laughs> Guys, the gospel actually works. It actually changes people. And I needed that. Like, I needed to see that. It gave so much, like, confidence to me to see that there was both an anchor habit of grace and habits in action that made the participants in these programs at Shepherd's Door the people that they were much more enabled, much more dignified, much more capable. Their best selves were being lived out before my eyes. We sat in what was called a community life service and people sang and worshiped. And then two people came up and they, they, were, they were graduating to a new phase of the program. And they had to testify. They had to give their testimony of saying how I've grown, how Christ is the reason for who I am. And then other people sat around and got to give them affirmations of their character affirmations of their character and you could just see the women light up they didn't even know what to do with themselves to be affirmed in their character them the people that had no virtue whatsoever that were in the bottom of the pile completely ignored but because of the grace given by Jesus he healed them and then he welcomed them to Portland Rescue Mission where they began to learn the teachings as they climbed up the tall hard rigorous mountain 
I don't know how to express it other than it was just a visceral sense, a reminder that what I'm doing matters, that what we're learning matters, that while it may not look like it, the gospel still has power. And so much of it was because God said, I need to show you an individual. I need you to have fellowship with a soul because we are so quick, especially me, to paint people as types and view things as cultures and say, well, I know how homeless people are. I know how battered women are. I, I know how that is. I, I kind of know how it works, you know. Maybe they're using that program to blah, blah, whatever cynical reason we come up with. It took it's looking in the face of people and seeing, no, for sure, Jesus's radical teachings are true. Paul Simon ends the song saying this, blessed are the stained glass, window pane glass. Blessed is the church service. And he says, makes me nervous. Blessed are the penny rookers, cheap hookers, groovy lookers. Oh Lord, why have you forsaken me? I, I have tended my own garden much too long. Jesus says it this way. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's haunting. It's haunting. Because Jesus says, what you do with this life matters. And you built your anchor habits. And your imagination for what habits are for is the wrong thing. What are habits for, church? They are to live out of the anchor, out of the healing of Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray that today that you would help all of us understand the testimony that you've given us to live out, the changes that you've asked us to make, the way that you've asked us to be like, help us to re-examine and institute a core habit, a space of simply knowing we're healthy by being able to see your face, by being able to hear your voice, by feeling your healing touch, God. We know you do it. Amen.